1: Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Anything and everything we need only that you call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. At 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Uh, tonight, Wednesday night, I'm going to be teaching out of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 44 tonight. We are studying the life of Joseph and um what an inspirational character he is, and it only gets better from here to the end of the book. And then, of course, tomorrow, the date day edition of the program, uh, Paula will be live in the studio with me, and we got a lot to talk about. So, uh, we'd love to have your calls and questions there as well. I want to thank uh, Pastor Hector Velarde for uh, being with me yesterday. I really enjoy him. I, I've only known him a short time. But uh, I just love what the Lord is doing in him and through him over at Calvary Chapel New Spring. Well, let me get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, the first one comes from Nicholas. He said, Pastor, my church has people who speak in tongues all at once, uh, and they, and they're encouraged to use the gift in that manner. Is that biblical? And then when do you allow people to speak in tongues at Calvary Chapel? Um, Nicholas, uh, it, it's not biblical for uh, uh, people to be speaking in tongues all at once. In fact, in the assembly of believers, uh, there are very strict instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, chapter 13, right between them, uh, is, is the motive for the use of the gifts, but we're told how to use the gifts, and tongues is a private gift, a gift between the user and God himself. And so it's it's a very private, it's a very personal gift. It's not like in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit poured out and everybody spoke in a different tongue at the same time. And in fact, by the way, it doesn't say everybody spoke in tongues. It just said that they they were speaking in, in unknown tongues. The disciples were. And the others heard them in a language that they could understand. That was a one-time entrance into Uh, the world sort of on the church's first birthday. So uh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that that two or three at the most should speak in tongues and one at a time and only then if there is an interpreter or somebody with a gift of interpretation who could make the message that comes in an unknown tongue could make that message uh, something that is able to be understood. And that's the biblical use. And and Paul he goes one step further. He says, if there's no interpretation, then cut off the gift of tongues. Uh, because if he said if somebody comes in, everybody's speaking in tongues, they're gonna think you're crazy. Remember, we want to win people's heart. We want to engage our minds and our hearts. So uh, it is not biblical and sadly too many churches wildly charismatic churches and i repeat every time i say something on this nature we here at calvary chapel are charismatic we believe in the gifts of the spirit i personally operate in the gift of tongues Uh, so so it's a good gift it just needs to be used on god's terms his gift we're his people he gets to determine how it's used And so when you walk into a church that has everybody speaking in tongues at the same time, uh, you're in a church that's out of control. Remembering self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And if you're in a place that's out of control, you're in a place that's not being um, affected by the power of the Holy Spirit at all. It's a spirit. It's just not the Holy Spirit. Now, you ask, when do we allow people to speak in tongues? In the assembly, as I just explained, we don't really allow people. We come here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We teach the word, which is written by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would never interrupt himself by saying, well, somebody needs to get them to speak in tongues. So we don't do it, as Paul indicates in his letter, both to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians, that the church is to be operating functionally uh, in an orderly fashion. And so we don't have a time where people can say, well, Pastor Ron, I have a word from God, or I have a word in tongues. We just don't do that. Now, once in a while, we're going to be doing it in a couple of weeks here at Calvary Chapel. On Friday nights, when we finish a book, we have what, what we call an afterglow. And that's when the gifts of the Spirit can be used. And again, they're used according to the standards given to us in the Word. Uh, and uh, there will be some times when somebody will give a word in tongues and we'll have an interpretation. If we don't, then we'll say nobody else can speak in tongues. But but um, uh, it, it's in a meeting like that, more of a fellowship meeting, uh, where we're enjoying the presence of one another and enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit. That would be the place where tongues could be spoken in an orderly manner. But remember, the moment you go outside of the guidelines given by the Word of God, Nicholas, then you no longer are functioning in the power of the real Holy Spirit at all. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, I've got teachings in First Corinthians 12 and 14 uh, at calvaryessay.com and I go into a great deal of detail. Just remember, when we go to church, we're going to God's house, we apply uh, or, or we play by His rules. Uh, we apply His standards. Uh, and anything short of that is not the Holy Spirit at all. It's just carnality or flesh. So I appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Jason. Pastor on what is meant by not laying hands on someone suddenly? Uh, the laying on of hands that Paul is talking about with Timothy when he says, do not lay hands suddenly on any person. Um, the idea is, is in, in ordination, In other words, you wouldn't take a new believer and say, you know, I like you. I'm going to make you a pastor. Because if that was the case, you'd be putting that person in a position that he is not qualified to be in. You'd you'd actually be putting him in spiritual harm. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, don't ordain somebody suddenly. Make sure they are proven and make sure they are tested in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, It is required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. So we have to give people enough time to prove themselves faithful. Not only that, before I would ordain somebody, uh, I need to give them enough time so that others in the church can see that they're doing the work of a pastor or that they have the heart of a pastor. And and so when I say uh, the Lord is is today going to ordain so and so to be a pastor, everybody say, well, yeah, well that makes a lot of sense. So we don't want to do that quickly. Uh, one of the real problems churches have when they get started, especially uh, because you know when a pastor and his wife goes out and starts a brand new church, anybody that can help, you're just thinking, God send me somebody. You know we pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused. And the fearful and Paula will sometimes say, well, Lord, send us some healthy ones, too. Well, when the healthy ones come, um, you nurture them and you train them and you raise them up. But you find out that a lot of those who appear to be healthy aren't that healthy at all. And a lot of the people, Jason, who started out and you thought, oh, boy, is this guy messed up. uh, I can tell you, I've got six pastors on my staff who were in that boy, this guy's messed up category. And and just watching what God has done in their lives is a is a wonderful thing. Let me take just a minute. I got nobody waiting on hold. Um, you know, Jason, there's there's almost nothing that I do that is more rewarding than watching Young men growing the Lord, and by that I mean men who who I can see that God has a call in their life. I've got a young man now who's been saved maybe a year and three or four months, uh, and from the beginning he just started running with Jesus, and he's been doing it. He's been growing. Uh, he had the opportunity to lead uh, one of the kids in his children's ministry uh, to the Lord uh, just this past week, and I'm I'm looking at this guy and praying for him. And just thinking, you know, this guy was on his way to prison, and now look at what God is doing in him and through him. And I have no doubt that a day will come in the next few years where, where uh, it will be clear, not just to me, but to everybody else, that this is a man who has been chosen by God to lead people. And boy, when you get to see the work that God is doing in people like that, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. I have a, a man on my staff that was hurt so deeply uh, you know, by a personal situation. I've never heard anybody cry as hard as this man. And, and, and it was just impossible what he was going through. But he handled it with such grace and such love and with such faith in God. His faith never wavered. And as painful as it was to watch him, I could actually see Jesus, I'm speaking figuratively here, but I could actually see Jesus like the potter, and this pastor was the lump of clay, and he was being shaped and molded in little water representing the Holy Spirit applied and softening up, and I could see God making him into this this wonderful man of God. And now I trust him of course with my life and with the lives of those I I care so deeply about in the church Uh, that's why you don't rush you take your time and Jason what you want to do as a pastor is make sure God is making the selections not you a lot of people that I never thought would amount to much and I watch God make them trophies for his glory so that's what's meant by not laying hands on someone suddenly that's all. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate the question. Roberta says, Is a baby born out of wedlock a creation of God or a product of sin? Um, R- Roberta, the answer is a little bit of both. Now, let me deal with this question in terms of a creation of God. Um, nobody is a creation of God except Adam and Eve. Only those two, Adam and Eve, were made by the, by the hand of God. Uh, The rest of us are uh, products of a a system, uh, a mechanism by which children are born. Um, We have sex, women get pregnant, a baby is born. Um, And and all babies are a gift from God. And um, a baby that's born when the parents are not married, we call it out of wedlock, um, is certainly a product of sin. But it's one of those times when God makes beauty from ashes, it's one of those times when um, um, the moment you hold the child, that very moment you look into his or her eyes and you think, God, you did this. Roberta, I've seen the Lord use um, pregnancies to win moms and the dads when, when people weren't married. Uh, I've seen him use pregnancies um, to, to win the, 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 the parents to Christ. It's, it's just such a powerful tool. And what happens when this baby is born is we dedicate this baby to the Lord and and this baby's off on the right foot. So um, it's always a little difficult. We, we want to be able to say it's sin to have sexual relationships before you're married. The reality is that even while it's sin, Um, women have sex they get pregnant um, they know it's wrong but then something magnificent comes from a gift as a gift from God comes from the act and so I, I think yeah it's a product of sin but it's such a beautiful product and we embrace them, and there's always this fine line, you know. When somebody is is uh, repentant and they they, they they become pregnant and they know it's wrong, then you know they're forgiven, and we open our arms to them. Somebody who uh, isn't repentant, well, I don't care what God says. I, you know I'm pregnant, and this is my baby. Um, and, you know that's not the baby's fault. The baby, when the baby arrives, the baby is still a wonderful blessing from the Lord. So, Roberta, here's one of those times when we have to have a little bit of nuance. It can't be either or, one way or another. This is balance. And the balance is looking into the eyes of that baby and seeing what God has done. And then, as a church body, of course, we pray for the baby, we pray for the parents. And um, what we want to do is, is have people following Jesus. And, again, I've seen them use pregnancies, um, even... Among unmarried people, uh, I've seen these pregnancies to win hearts and change lives. Thanks for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five, 9585 Or, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero kslr Roberta says, oops, I, don't know if that, I, I think I copied the same name from the last one. I don't know who this one's from. Um, Do you think the second coming of Jesus is an essential of our faith? Or do some Christians make way too big a deal out of it? Um, Roberta, the second coming, uh, you know, an essential of our faith is that Jesus uh, was born of a virgin, uh, that he lived, that he he died, he was murdered, and and he rose again. But we also need to believe that Jesus is coming back. So in that sense, the second coming of Jesus to the earth is an essential of our faith. If somebody says, well, I don't believe Jesus coming back. Dead people don't come back. um, You know, that's not somebody who belongs to the faith. That's not somebody who's a part of the faith. Um, Practically speaking, um, uh, what somebody's eschatological view is uh, on on the rapture of the church or the coming of Christ, pre-trip, post-trip, or or, uh, any other position um, is not an essential for salvation, but I think it is an essential for um, the way we live and the choices we make. Um, you know, if I believe that Jesus is coming back soon, it's going to change the decisions that I make. It's going to change uh, the the way I, I, I view things. Uh, I look at the world differently if I believe Jesus is coming back. When I'm tempted, I don't want to be found uh, falling into sin and then have Jesus come. So I think if we live our lives truly believing, truly expecting that Jesus could return at any moment, then I don't think we can make too big a deal out of that at all because I think it is a very big deal. Now, it's true that some Christians want to argue about it. They want to They want to stake um, um, a particular position and they want everybody to agree with them um, I think there are people that have made a big deal out of it, in the sense of naming dates, um, there's been so many false prophecies of when Jesus is going to return and I think that is to mishandle what I think is a very essential doctrine but, but uh, the second coming of Christ is an essential of our faith um, and I think if we're living our lives with our, our eyes set on things above Fix your eyes on Jesus, Paul wrote, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, to set our minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus told parables about the wicked lazy servant who says, my master delays his coming. So I think every single day when we have um, a moment to think Jesus today could be the day, And if we really believe that, then it changes us and it changes the way we live our lives. So because of that, um, I don't think we can make too big a deal out of it at all. So I hope that helps. And I'm sorry, Roberta, that wasn't your question, but I didn't get the name on the one who that was. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. 9585 here live, calls Seth, says, uh, what is the difference between God being in control but not being in charge. Um, Seth, I've never been asked a question that way before. Uh, I think this is a question that deals with God's sovereignty. Um, um, God is always in control of all things. Now, we also know that the devil is the prince of the air or the little g-god of this world. And it appears to a lot of people, including me at times, like the devil's the one who's calling the shots and he's in charge. But but make no mistake, God is always in charge. Now, there are things God allows. He's got the devil on a leash. And it may seem at times like it's a really, really long leash. But remember, God is still giving people, chosen for salvation, he's still giving those people um, the the freedom to make their own choice. God doesn't make anybody follow him. And Satan, uh, along with the desires of this world and 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 our flesh all sort of conspiring against us, spiritually speaking, um, God is giving us all a chance to make our own choice. And he will honor whatever choice we make. If we want to come to him, his arms are open wide. If we want to be independent from him, God will honor that not only in time, but he will honor it in eternity. So God is always in charge. Make no mistake, the book of Esther is a great example. The entire book, the word God, the name Jesus, the name God Almighty, Lord of hosts, any of the names for God, they're not mentioned one time. But in the background, you can see the the hand of God throughout the entire book, sort of manipulating circumstances and, and, and using even the enemies of God to accomplish his will. So God is always in charge. He's always in charge, even when it looks like he's not in control. Now, Seth, that's what takes faith. You look around at a world that seems to be insane, and yet Jesus is still on the throne. So we needn't worry. We need always to remember that God is in charge of all things. So, Seth, thank you for that. Good question. Never, ever forget. Don't let the enemy rip you off and lie to you about who's in charge. God is always in charge. Uh, we may not understand the choices he makes. Think about Job. Why would, why would God allow the devil to take all of that from Job and then continue to, to, to devastate him and then send friends who turned out not to be such great friends? And you just think, God, I don't understand why you would allow that. But then we get the book of Job. A a book that deals with God's sovereignty, God's power, God's majesty, and also deals with the questions that we all ask about why. The one lesson I get from the book of Job, more than any, is just don't ask God why. It's always okay to ask God questions, but we shouldn't question God. And usually when we say, why is this happening, Lord? Or why did you let this happen to me? Or why didn't you stop this from happening? I think those questions um, are more questioning God than asking questions. And and you notice from the very beginning in the book of Job, the question why is all throughout. and, And it's a question God never takes the time to answer. There is no why. Satan was checking Job out. God simply acknowledged that. God didn't offer Job up. But when Satan said, he will curse you if you remove your blessing from him. If I can afflict him physically, God let him do it. and Job stood the test of time and proved himself. Can you imagine the rewards in heaven when Job got there? For all the billions, literally, of people throughout the history of this world who, because of what he experienced and the raw honesty of his experience, how they sustained so many. You know, when I taught Job verse by verse, um, I was um, afraid. You know, I have a tendency to live through the things I'm teaching seems like the trials that the churches are going through, the, the churches that Paul addressed, well, they're, they're trials that I'm experiencing. And I just thought, oh, Lord, Job. I don't want to teach Job. And it was such a blessing to our church. It gets old and tedious at times. But the idea is you want to see a clear vision of God. You're never going to see that vision any more clearly than when you're suffering. Paul calls it sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. God allows those things because we need them. Again, that might be when it seems like God's not in control or not in charge. But He is. So God is always in control. He's always in charge. And even what Satan does that makes absolutely no sense to the rest of us, God has him on a leash He's going to be released after the thousand year reign of Christ on earth for a short time. And then finally, that leash is going to be cut and he's going to be cast into the lake of fire where he will spend the rest of eternity. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very much for the question. Hey, I want to remind you that Paul is coming uh, to the studio tomorrow. She'll be live on the date day edition of the program. Uh, We've got 30 minutes left in our show today. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
1: Welcome back to the program. I'm laughing because my producer's saying, well, you're really talking fast. You're going to go through all of your questions. You didn't even breathe between some questions. If I have a style, that's it. I just talk too much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Maybe you can break up my style a little bit by asking some questions. Or toll free eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. Here's a question from Mark. He said, "I know you started in a prosperity church. How did you realize that they were presenting a false gospel?" Mark, um, I think I knew it um, when I first got saved. Uh, I had had uh, sinned horribly. Um, I I was in in such deep financial trouble. I I lost a fortune. Um, And I needed money. And I had a friend uh, who was a Christian. And he said, come to church with me. Come to church with me. And and he was going to uh, one of the worst false teachers, Frederick Casey Price in Los Angeles. Um, And um, uh, I, I didn't know. I'd never even opened a Bible at that point in my life. But um, uh, I just knew I, you know, I was a, a salesman. I was a, a car dealer, um, and I knew a scam, and I just knew it. Now I wanted it to be true so badly. God wants me to be rich. I want to be rich. That seemed to me like a good combination, and uh, and yet it just sort of rang hollow to me. Um, so I started studying. Uh, I wanted to find out. And then one Sunday, uh, uh, Paul and I drove into Los Angeles for church at, uh, at uh, Fred Price's church. And he was teaching on the curse of the law. And uh, uh, he said in Galatians 13, uh, 3.13, um, he said, uh, Christ has redeemed us, Paul said. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then Fred Price closed his Bible. And he said, the curse of the law is poverty because the blessing on Abraham was wealth. And I thought, okay, finally, there's something I can prove. And remember, I wanted God to want me to be rich. But I went to Galatians chapter three, I read redeemed from the curse of the law. And then I started saying, what was the curse of the law? And it had nothing to do with poverty. The curse of the law is that the law didn't accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish. And that's reconciliation with sinful man. That was the freedom from the curse of the law, the 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 law that condemned, and Jesus died that we could be reconciled to Him, that we live. So I, I just when when He said Galatians three thirteen, um, uh, the the curse of the law was poverty. I knew that that was something I could prove, and Mark from that point forward, when I started digging in, I, I just realized that it wasn't true. And then it was almost as though God gave me um, ears and a, and a mind to hear uh, what they were really teaching. And it certainly wasn't Jesus. It was this health and wealth gospel that is uh, so accursed, so, so accursed. So that's how I realized it at the beginning. Uh, I have seen, Mark, so much damage done in people's lives over the years because of this prosperity gospel that it has absolutely broken my heart. Uh, I used to be much more vocal against it than I am now. I think I've grown up a little bit, and and I'm much more vocal in in, um, um, communion with Jesus. Rather than being against something, I'm more pro-something. But I have never hesitated to call a false teaching a false teaching. And we live in a time where the prosperity gospel uh, is appealing to our flesh, to our carnality, and uh, I've seen a lot of damage. I've seen so much damage done because of this false teaching over the years. Um, So uh, for me, that was the process that I went through. And for for me also, it was liberating um, to know, you know, it didn't sound right. It doesn't sound like a God that's a God of love. And at the same time, uh, I had to prove it because I didn't know any more than the people who believed it knew, and I just really needed to find out what's true. And God, in His grace, is always a rewarder of those who earnestly or diligently seek Him. So I hope that answers your question, Mark. Uh, If you have been exposed to the prosperity gospel, just sort of flush your brain. Flush everything out that you've been taught. It's all wrong. Start all over. Can I say one other thing, Mark, that really was really important for me? After I um, uh, and it's, it's, it's not the best book I've ever written, but in my life, it's the most influential book because of the time that it came. Uh, when I found out that the curse of the law was not poverty, and then I had to say, okay, well, so what is true? Jesus, show me what is true. And sort of sovereignly behind the, screens, behind the scenes, God led me to a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's all about cheap grace and, and it's a, a an exegesis of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's more than that. And uh, I, I remember going through that book in a day. I, I filled up a, a legal pad and a half of notes and I went right home from the library that day and said, Paula, people have been lying to us. We got to unlearn a bunch of stuff. This is what's true. And we started going through... Um, uh, what God had been showing me, and it, it it radically changed our lives. From that moment forward, the 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 air of authenticity was um, unshakable. We knew that God's word was His word. We knew that God didn't care about our wealth um, or lack of wealth. That that true riches came from being in his presence, and it just changed everything. So that is, for me, um, um, really what set us on that path. Here's a question from Adrian. Uh, He says, what is the right position between lordship, salvation, and free grace? I think, Adrian, like all things, and I've said this a lot on this program, the key is balance. Um, um, uh, lordship salvation at least as some describe it is uh, one end of the spectrum, free grace, cheap grace uh, is another end of the spectrum and the truth is always right in the middle Um, there are people who um, have not yet made Jesus the lord of their lives but who are saved they're in the process of sanctification God is the author and the finisher of our faith he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it And, um, you know, I I think there's a lot of people who don't understand uh, lordship salvation. There's a lot of Christians that call Jesus Lord who don't obey what he tells them to do. It's not that they're lying. they, They just don't know. They haven't learned enough or they haven't let the Spirit of God do enough work. So to say that unless Jesus is the Lord of every phase of your life, you're not saved, that's an extreme position. Um, the the gospel according to Jesus it's a, it's a book that sort of in, in my time with the Lord kicked off this debate written by John MacArthur um, and and uh, it, it is an extreme position on one end, on the other hand the free grace, you know, do what you want love, 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 God is already forgiven, grace is unmerited favor uh, that's the other extreme position and right in the middle of those two positions Adrian is Jesus there's Jesus saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. But if you mess up and confess your sins, I'll be faithful to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. So whenever you see these arguments, Calvinism or uh, the the other positions, uh, it, it's always going to be Arminianism Um, the the, the truth is going to be found in the middle. And when you're reading your Bible, Adrian, always look for the balance. And the people you hear them from time to time call this program, they're out of balance. The hyper-dispensationalists. We're dispensationalists, but then there's the hyper-dispensationalists who uh, they they want to convert everybody. There's the Calvinists that wants to convert everybody in their style or or their their, uh, systematic theology. Um, The balance is always in the middle. So, yes, grace is free, but because grace is free, we should be so grateful that obeying God is the desire of our heart. That's the right position between lordship, salvation, and free grace. I like that question, Adrian. You're thinking, and these are the kind of issues that as you're growing in the Lord, um, you've got to wrestle with. Good job. Here is an anonymous question. If someone has dementia... Or Alzheimer's, well, they go to heaven because they can't understand the gospel. Um, you, you know, Anonymous, God, um, both issues, dementia and Alzheimer's, are typically associated with people who are aging. Um, I've known Christians who had both dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, some of them had a, a, a vague memory of what they believed as a Christian. Uh, some had no memory at all. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know what day of the week it was. But who they were before they got sick, well, that's how they're going to be judged. So it, it's not that somebody, if, if somebody's, say, 65, 70 years old, and their their mind starts to go, well, they've had 65 or 70 years to know about Jesus and make a... a, a, a decision Um, but they didn't do it and at some point the disease takes over and, and they're gonna spend eternity separated from God it's not like well God's gonna give them a dementia break or an Alzheimer's break on the other hand God is going to comfort those who are his as best he's able in these difficult situations um, I've shared this on the program before as well, but but uh, Paul and I, our first ministry together, after I got saved, was in a nursing home. And the torment, uh, the 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 mercilessness, the relentlessness of the devil, was at times overwhelming. Um, there was a lady who couldn't hear, and the devil just beat her to death, and I had to, literally my face in her face yell at her. Paula would have to stand at the door and tell people who were, who were startled, oh she just can't hear She he's he's just speaking loudly to her. But I had to yell at her when she was under attack. And then I would remind her of some of the psalms that she knew or remind her of some of the promise of God and she'd calm right down. But I had to do that really, really loudly. Um, She, God honored who she was in her sickness but again on the other hand i've been kicked out of rooms in nursing homes when i bring up the name jesus get out of and, and the most hateful things and and horrible language um they rejected jesus before they were old and sick and um the devil has his way with them at the end so uh the people go to heaven because they believe in jesus christ but people who suffer from these mental illnesses, these physical conditions. um, They had a whole life to accept Jesus, and Jesus will be there. Ultimately, anonymous, um, God is just. We have to rely on his justice, his fairness, and his goodness, uh, and, and his love for the people. He doesn't want anybody to perish, so if there's any way to reach him, he's going to reach Him. 340-9585, 340-9585, This is a really quiet on the phones Wednesday. Henry asks, "Is it biblical to say God won't give you more than you can handle?" Um, Henry, uh, in in the the context of temptation, it is. First Corinthians ten thirteen says that God won't give us more than we can bear. It's that simple. Whenever you're tempted, um, then then He'll always provide a way out we can always overcome the temptation um, but it's it's a little too broad i think to say that whatever comes uh, in your life you can handle it um, truth is we, we all have difficult situations uh, often those situations in difficulty exceed our maturity in christ and so the truth is that we uh, we, we can't deal with them but that's when the spirit of god comes upon us and rests upon us and if we'll let him if we'll just maybe stop freaking out for a moment say okay Lord lead me through this trial take me away from this trial then I think God will walk with you through the trial and then you'll end up discovering that God was always there but to say that um, uh, we can handle anything uh, because God won't give us more than we can handle I think is uh, a little a little Unloving, maybe. Tell that to somebody who's lost a child suddenly. Tell that to the people in this last 14 or 15 months that have lost loved ones to COVID and they weren't even able to say goodbye to them. There could be no closure. Tell that to the the guy who invested uh, um, his life savings in a a small business uh, that COVID... um, closed and he lost his life savings and now doesn't know what the future holds now jesus will be with them god's grace is sufficient and if they walk with him they'll learn that but um i I think henry and i'll speak only for myself here but i know i can't handle anything apart from christ i know with jesus i can handle all things even even when i feel like i'm falling apart but apart from i can't handle anything So the point is that we run to Jesus um, and let him do all the fighting for us. Thank you for the question. Let's go to a first couple of phone calls. Scott from San Antonio on line one. Thanks for calling Scott, you're on the air.
0: Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Um, I just want to make a quick comment, something that a lady had told me many years ago when I was struggling and going through a real difficult time. And I thought it goes along with your, your last Uh, answer there but her her statement was um god won't give me anything i can't handle without his help and -hmm. the other one she had was if your eyes don't leak your head will swell anyway i just wanted to share that (laughs) god bless your brother and i'm really enjoying your uh, show today
1: Thank you, Scott. God bless. I like that. If your eyes don't leak, you, then your your head is going to swell and in some cases burst for sure. Thank you, Scott. appreciate it. Let's go to San Marcos online to Horatio. Horatio, you're on the air. Thanks for calling.
0: Thank you, Pastor Ron. Listen, mm-hmm. were the disciples saved before Jesus died or after the of or sins?
1: Yeah, they, they were saved, uh, Horatio, uh, when uh, when they believed in Jesus, but it was sort of an Old Testament salvation. Uh, just like Abraham was saved by faith, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The same thing is true with the disciples. They believed Jesus, they followed Jesus, and and were justified by faith. On the other hand, um, after Jesus was resurrected, And he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. That's when we would understand that they were born again. So we've got an Old Testament construct. Remember, Jesus' ministry was very Jewish and very Old Testament until the resurrection. And then he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then they became part of the family by faith in Jesus Christ, born again. So um, the answer is a little bit of both things. Does that make sense?
0: Right, and uh, I never heard of that before, just wondering when,
1: when they got saved. Okay. Yep. yep. That's good. Thank you, Horatio. Okay. Appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Universal City on Line 2 and Nancy on Line 2. Thanks for calling, Nancy. You're on the air.
0: Yes, uh, I'm just curious. What is the mark that God
1: put on Cain so he wouldn't be killed? Yeah, we don't know. Um, there, There is absolutely no way of knowing um, you know, um, the, the, the sort of the other side of that, Nancy, is God is going to, to mark the 144,000 witnesses uh, during the Great Tribulation, so they can't be harmed or killed either. And there's no description or detail given at all about what that mark is. But make no mistake, it could have been a mark in the hearts of the people that would do Cain harm. It, it could have been something physical. Uh, more likely, it was just... Um, um, God's way of letting everybody know that this guy is off limits but we don't know what the mark is and there's just no detail given so until we get to heaven we won't know Cain won't be there but but uh, we'll have the answer to these kind of questions when we get there sorry I can't right. give you any more detail but we just don't know okay okay, okay. Thank, you. thank you never been asked that question before either after nine years of doing this a little over nine years now um that's I don't get many questions I haven't been asked before. Here is a question from Benjamin. Jesus said that we are to pray privately. So why do we have things like church prayer meetings? Benjamin, uh, Jesus did say, but we always have to, to, to look at the context. Um, Jesus was saying that we need to pray privately when he was talking about the, the, the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed Lord I thank you that I'm not like other men I thank you Jews prayed they, they thank God they weren't born of women Jewish men um, um, when, when they'd see people who were poor when they'd see people who had leprosy um, and, and they made a, a big effort to be showy in their prayers you know that they were trying to uh, appear to be really, really spiritual so that normal people would look at them and say, oh, there's a holy man of God. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Go into your closet and pray. Don't do it. Uh, and he also said the same thing with fasting, by the way. that Don't let people know what you're doing. Just do it. Now, the reason that we have church of prayer meetings and other uh, issues um, uh, or other prayer meetings is is because we're told to do that as well. So what Jesus says to you when he's saying, Pray privately, he's just saying, you know, don't make a big deal out of your prayers. Don't don't do it so other people will see how spiritual you are. Um, have your own personal and private prayer relationship with me. But we have here at Calvary Chapel, we have corporate prayer every Saturday morning. And by the way, anybody on this radio audience, even though Calvary Chapel is not your church home, you're more than welcome to come and pray with us. At 9.30 every Saturday, somebody is here. Paul and I are here um, like 98% of the time, unless we're out of town. Um, and and we do it because God answers his prayers. We're two or more are gathered, he's there in our presence if we agree on these things. And it's just an opportunity to pour our hearts out before the Lord. And and these are really, really important times. So I think both of those things, Benjamin, are true. We're to do both things. Let's go to Jeff on line one. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey,
0: Pastor Ron. That was really nice with Pastor Hector yesterday. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, tomorrow's date day, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. No, real quick, I was listening to, uh, you know, something you you talked about at the beginning of your Ephesians 5 study uh, about faith being faith being the missing ingredient in submission mm-hmm. and i wonder if you could just talk about that for a minute how faith recognizes authority and everything and i'll get off the line and talk to you tomorrow bye thank you
1: thank you jeff god bless you know i i i, I could done whole messages on this this subject jeff i've only got to about three and a half minutes left in the program so let me just say this in, in the the um, the story of the roman centurion um, um who asked jesus to heal his servant and jesus said i'll come to your house he goes no you don't need to come to my house uh, i too am a man under authority just say the word my servant will be healed and jesus marveled at him because he said, I haven't found such great faith in all of Israel. And I personally think, Jeff, that Jesus said that looking directly at his 12 disciples. It's, it's Jesus saying, hey, this guy, this Gentile gets it. What's wrong with you guys? How many times did Jesus say to them, oh, ye have little faith? But here's the thing. Jesus was marveling that a man under authority recognized authority. And so faith accepts authority. Not because we trust the authority, but because we trust God. When we tell women to submit to their, the leadership of their husbands in the home, it's not because their husbands are good leaders or, or that they're particularly trustworthy. It's because we trust God. We do our part. God does His part. And so um, um, the faith understands the need to submit because we trust God. And I think our flesh so rebels against uh, being under authority, Jeff, that we simply don't want anything to do with it. And we we try to find all kinds of loopholes around submitting to authorities, whether it's to the the husband in the home or to the pastor in the church or to the governing authorities because we don't agree with them. And God is saying, hey, oh, ye of little faith, have I been with you for such a long time and you still do not believe? You don't get it. So I think... That's what we we've got to understand. Faith understands the need to submit, and God. I'll take it one step further, Jeff. God teaches us to submit to Him. Using other people, our boss at work, you say, "Well, my boss is a jerk. He's not fair. He doesn't care about me." But 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 God does. And if you understand that you're really working for God, then you work as unto the Lord, even when you're. You're being taken advantage of work that requires great faith so that's what I mean when faith recognizes authority when you get to chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians um, you know, you're going to talk a lot about being under authority. authority one to another, submit one to another out of reverence or fear of God um, husbands um, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord Jeff, thanks for the call We will be back, Paul and I, um, tomorrow we're going to talk about some real personal stuff. So uh, this has been The Word to Stand on for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back at 4 o'clock tomorrow and a.m. 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand on for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.